Hello, 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 everyone. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Welcome. I'm your host, Nika Sherell, and this is the ITCAST Real Talk. The ITCAST is our community outreach podcast that aims to increase diversity in conversations on health and sexuality. Through this work, we are creating a world where all people feel loved, honored, and respected. Please visit us on Patreon to support the ITCAST and learn more about our work at NikaSherelles.com. That's N-I-K-A-C-H-E-R-R-E-L-L-E-S.com. And you can also subscribe to our YouTube channel and please do share with your community. We are creating 100 subscribers and we are so very close. So please join in and play with us and continue to stay engaged in this conversation. This week's topic is Real Talk on Colorism, and I am very fortunate to have my good friend, Dr. Sarah L. Webb here. Sarah is an assistant professor at the Department of English and Modern Languages at the University of Illinois Springfield, where she teaches creative writing, literature, and cultural studies. She launched a global initiative, Colorism Healing, in 2013 to raise awareness and foster individual and collective healing through creative and critical work. Dr. Webb's myriad of efforts to address colorism, uh, including designing a course uh, on global colorism for UIS and hosting an international writing contest, publishing books, consulting, speaking, leading workshops on colorism, and mentoring youth and students across the world from Sacramento, California to Sydney, Australia. Dr. Sarah Webb has continued uh, contributed to several academic and non-academic articles, presented at national conferences, and been featured as a guest on regional NPR studios. She's also been a guest on the national streaming network, Fox Soul TV, and recently been featured in the Illinois Time and on the TEDx stage. One of Dr. Sarah Webb's favorite pastimes is providing edutainment on Instagram and TikTok. Dr. Webb, please, please join us in the booth. Hello. Hello, there you are. Be <laughs> here. Yay, I'm so excited. <laughs> yes. So before we dive in, for the listeners and the viewers out there, can you just give us a brief description of like your cultural background, how you how how you identify uh, so that people can relate to you? Yeah. So I consider myself as a dark-skinned African-American woman from woman from South Louisiana cisgendered, heterosexual, single though. And um, yeah, I think those are the big ones. Oh, also able-bodied. Yes, I love that. I love that. And um, I started recently referring to myself as a dark-skinned African-American woman as well. And I'm like, there's something so unique about that life experience that it's important. <laughs> Like it's critically important for people to get. So I, I thank you for putting that into my reality. Mm -hmm. So let's dive in. First off, can you please explain what colorism is? Just to give us like, and I know it's a big topic. <laughs> yes, I'll do my best. Um, so colorism is a system. It's a structure, a social structure of both privilege and marginalization. And the system places greater value on lighter skin tones as well as more European and European phenotypes. So when I say phenotype, I mean any of the physical features that we typically associate with a particular race. So we tend to associate blonde hair with white people and not 
Black people or Asian people or Native Americans, right? We tend to associate Black people with, you know, really coily, kinky hair and not white people with that hair texture. So there are physical traits that have become racialized throughout history. And so colorism places greater value on the European phenotypes. So the pale skin tones, the thinner noses, the lighter eye colors, the lighter hair colors and straighter hair textures. And, not, and when I say privileges are place, places greater value on those things, yes, there's the beauty standard, which a lot of people know when we talk about colorism, those features are seen as more beautiful, but people with those features are also assumed to be more intelligent. They're also assumed to be more professional. They're also assumed to be less threatening and less criminal, right? And people with more indigenous or African or traditionally black features are seen as the opposite of that, are positioned as being more criminal, as, are positioned as being um, less refined or less intelligent, uh, less capable. And I, I include the fact that it's global. So this happens I don't know of a cultural group or a region in the world that doesn't have some form of colorism. The histories can vary. Um, there are some pre-colonial forces of colorism in various countries. And then there's also the post-colonial result of colorism, which I think many people are familiar with. Um, and throughout all those cultures, throughout all those ethnic groups around the world and all those different places, it is the darker skinned people of the group who are discriminated, who are oppressed, and who are denied access to certain privileges that the lighter skinned people in that group have access to. Yes, and oh, I love that you said pre-colonial and post-colonial. I've always articulated it as this like, you know, like this Eurocentric idealization. And when we talk about beauty standards, like I hear like, oh, someone's a 10. And it's like, based on what scale? based on what spectrum, you know, and to talk about all of the stuff, you know, in, including intelligence, criminalization, like there are things that put us on this spectrum and it is global. I love that. Um, can you talk about, so actually before we go into that, what is what, what pre-colonial? That's the part that actually tripped me up. Like, what do you mean? <laughs> yeah, so, <clears throat> In, on the continent of Africa and Asia, for example, they have had color prejudices even before Europeans came and instilled the delusion of white supremacy. Um, but especially, it's, it's most commonly known in Asian countries as caste, right? Or um, where there's a correlation to the lower caste being darker skinned and people with higher caste or even aristocracy monarchy, you know, we think about even ancient Egypt, right, where the ruling classes were associated with people who tended to have lighter skin tones. But I do say too, and I'm not a historian, I have, I'm an expert in colorism, but I don't know all the nuances of ancient Egypt or, you know, whatever. But there is something about colonialism that entrenched colorism in a way that it never was before, right? So while I acknowledge that before European colonialism, certain um, cultures had a practice where darker skinned people were in the lower caste of that society, but there's something different about it. It has a different tone now that we're talking about European col colonialism. I'm gonna say European colorism, which is basically the same thing. <laughs> That's fair. That's totally fair. Um, and, you know, through what you were saying, that really did open up for me a couple of other thoughts, you know, like there before the 
idea of colonialism that we talk about, you know, like I'd say like modern colonialism, there was still the conquering yeah. and the exploring of the world. And there's all these other things. Um, and I have heard in certain African countries that there is an idealization of darker skinned people. And like that is still colorism. It's that like, that this is better for these reasons. Now, I don't know where that is. I don't know how accurate that is, but I heard it. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. yeah. Now that that's something where I think it um it, it to a degree, right? To an extent, the idealization of darker skin because there's definitely cut the what, how we know colorism in Africa, right? I, I know a lot of um, African people who are in my community online, and they all talk about you know African people using bleaching creams. It's a multi-billion-dollar industry in Asia and Africa, right? The practice of skin bleaching. And, you know, there's the, because Africa is typically known to have lots of dark-skinned people, right? And you will see lots of dark-skinned people on TV and lots of dark-skinned people in power, in politics. I will say that it's probably not as bad, right? In, in um, a settler colonial society like the United States. Um, yeah, and so there are different types of colonialism, right? Even though Africa was colonized, they, we're still the numerical majority, right? Versus in the US where it was colonized and then the black and brown people also were the numerical minority in addition to being, sorry, in addition to being the um, social or the more marginalized politically and economically. Yeah, I love what you're talking about when it comes to like the bleaching creams. Um, you know, when I was, when I was traveling throughout Asia, I actually like, I, I was like, I'm not buying any of their products over here because even like their lotions, like basic things that were not specifically bleach and cream would have these agents in it because yeah. of this strive towards lightness. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just to put in like, there are dark skinned people of color indigenous to every place on this planet. Yeah. Like that's one of the things that gets missed. So when I was in the Philippines, they talked about like the indigenous people there and mm -hmm. how like they almost don't exist anymore based mm -hmm. on the history of colonialism and everything that went on there. Yeah. So like there is this concept of like eradicating blackness mm -hmm. and that it's dangerous in my personal opinion. <laughs> um, so we, a person. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> one more time what was that I don't want to be eradicated no yeah no but if I can speak directly to that I know you have a follow-up question but part of that eradication of blackness people also have a form of like bleaching through um their offspring so their mating choices who they choose to partner with who they choose to bear children with is sort of a, like a generational bleaching. And there's in the um, Latin American culture, Central and South America, there's something called mejorando la raza, bettering the race, or blanqueamiento la raza, right? So whitening the race. And so it's, you know, you're not using physical creams on your own skin, but through strate strategic partnering and, you know, practices of um, reproduction, you ensure that the generations after you get closer and closer to that European standard. So that is. Yes. <laughs> no, that's absolutely perfect. Cause that was my next question. Like how does this show up in non-black communities? And I'm like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
Yeah. And, um, and it shows up, you know, like, like they have a phrase for it, but I've seen it, you know, I've seen it inside my own family. I've seen it in my life. You talked about like thinner noses. And when I was a kid, my mom was like, if you pinch your nose like this, like it'll, it'll eventually reshape itself. And I was like, why am I hurting my face? <laughs> right. People would put cl- clothespins on babies' noses, you know? Mm. Yeah, clothespins. Like walk around with that. And it's, um, there's an interesting article too about like Afro-Brazilian families because so Latinx is an ethnicity, it's not a race. And so a, a part of the confusion with all of these conversations is the, the slippage of these terms like nationality versus ethnicity versus race. And the fact that those are not interchangeable even though we use them interchangeably and people that confuses people. So when, you, when we say Latinx, people assume that that's separate and apart from black. And there's a lot of anti-Blackness in Latinx communities. And so a lot of Latinx people of African descent um, throughout the generations have chosen not to identify as Black, right? And so there's this sort of intentional suppression of the African ancestry of so many Latinx people, so many people who, who have been on, in Central and South America for generations since the slave trade, right? Since their ancestors arrived there on slave ships. Um, but I think we're seeing a resurgence of that now and other places in the diaspora too, like in Germany, right? Like people are starting to identify as Afro-German, for example, whereas before it was shameful. It was like something you wanted to run away from, like not wanting to acknowledge that there's African ancestry there. Um, and then even in the, in the Central and South America in particular, um, there's a different way of categorizing people by race. So they do rely more on phenotype for racial categorization than we do in the United States, right? The United States is like that blood quantum, the hypo descent, one drop rule. It's about who your parents were, right? Whereas in Latin America, you can identify your race based more so on your phenotype, on your physical look, and not so much on the so-called one drop rule or blood quantum mess that (laughs) they started practicing in the US. So it's very nuanced. It's very nuanced in terms of the particular, the particular nuances from place to place. Um, but despite that, people still don't want to be dark, right? Like, so despite those differences, there's that same pattern that they don't want to be dark and they don't want to be known as Black. Yeah. So. Yes. That's real. So um, I love, it, it warmed me to hear that like the Afro-German and things of that nature, like really allowing and, and owning and taking that in. Um, but you, you started to speak to this. Can you talk about how colorism and racism are related? Because like, mm-hmm. I'm having a hard time, like what, what came first, the chicken or the egg? <laughs> yeah. Exactly, because, okay, so let me start, let me back up a few steps first, if, I'm, if I may. Please. People will often dismiss me and other people who try to talk about colorism by suggesting that it's a lesser issue than racism. They'll say, well, we, you know, whatever, you know, colorism, we're trying to focus on the real problem, racism. We're trying to focus on white supremacy. And what I tell people is that colorism is white supremacy. So if you really about that life, about that dismantling white supremacy life, then you better be talking about colorism, because that is white supremacy. And so here's the thing, the race is made up, 
Race is a social construct. We know that. Oftentimes we hear people say that as a way to just ignore conversations about racism. But what I mean when I say that is that the label, the category, the what's written on my birth certificate is a made up thing. Just like, you know, we say this is a dollar bill and it's worth a hundred pennies. We just going to agree on that. But my skin tone, my hair texture, my eye color are biological facts that no matter what you call me, no matter what category or box you put me into in terms of a race, I'm going to look the same. I will still have the same complexion, hair texture, and eye color. And so I think colorism, very controversial, is the more salient point of discrimination and marginalization throughout history, right? And we also can't ignore the fact that the, the labels of white, the labels of black, the labels of brown, the labels of yellow, the labels of red are literally, literally founded on the skin tone. Chicken or the egg, the racial categories would not have panned out the way they did if they were not mapped onto skin tone, period, point blank, right? And so to say that, you know, racism is more important than colorism is missing the fact that racism is based on colorism. And this is how, this is my, you know, theorization. <laughs> um, and because people talk about colorism being internalized racism, which to a degree is, is accurate, right? So especially in the diaspora, right? Because you think about people who are on the continent of Africa and they were, it was normal to be dark skinned. It was normal to have, you know, coily hair and you come to a colonized place or you, your place gets colonized and all of a sudden you're being told that that's not good enough, that that's not worthy enough. And so the internalization of that for people of color and for black people and POCs around the world, that is based on the racism. But the racism coming from, from Europeans, from Europe, they were choosing categories based on how people looked in the first place. So the only reason they othered us in the first place was because we looked different. Yeah. And in terms of whiteness, right, race also came about because white people wanted to hoard power. And so they had to determine, okay, well, do you get to be considered white? And so they were looking at people who had light skin, who had straight hair, right? You know, people from Turkey and, you know, other Mediterranean places who would look white based on our standards, right? But they spoke different languages. They didn't speak, you know, British English and things like that. And so over time, the category of white became larger and larger as it was strategically convenient to the people who wanted to retain power. And so there's, I think we, the conversation, if we center race, if we center racism, we, there's like, at least 50%, I would say 80 to 90% of the conversation that we're missing, right? I think the conversation, if we only talk about race, if we only talk about racism, we're only getting a very small slice of what our world and societies are really built on and based on. Yes. Racism is rooted in colorism. Like that, that for me solidifies the entire, as like, like all, the, the entire conversation around it, because when I think about colorism, it's like, this feels so much bigger 
than the black white conversation that we're in. Mm -hmm. And I've shared this multiple times, but like black and white are not ethnicities. They're not cultures. They are political prescriptions and choices. Mm -hmm. And it's a very political thing. When you were talking about, um, you know, uh, the Latinx conversation and like there, there was a time when Spanish and people of Spanish descent would, were considered white. And so this then tapped into a large myriad of people of color who now could pass for white. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, it's so funny because you talk about like the black white dichotomy and how other people of color feel left out of that. But there's part of the history within the United States, right? I'm, I'm going to talk about this in the context of the US, is that when you look at the legal construction of race, because race is also legal, it's a legal thing. Like there, it's tied to the legality of the way the world, the country was set up. And so when founding, you know, people, judges and courts and all that stuff, they were really trying to figure out who was white and who was not white, right? And so it's only in our recent memory that we, that we make the dichotomy a black-white dichotomy, but the original dichotomy was who is white and who isn't white. Right. And what I tell other people of color is that if you weren't white, you might as well be me. You might as well be black because that was, that was their goal. They were like, you ain't white. We're trying to figure out who's white, right? We're not worried about y'all separating and distinguishing amongst yourselves until it benefited them, right? The white, the white power structure will only distinguish amongst people of color when it benefits them, when it benefits their bottom line. So yeah, solidarity. <laughs> yeah. Yes, thank you. And, I, and I, this is a conversation I've had before where it's like, you can be white or other. Cause like, those are really the options that are out there. It's like either you're in that conversation or you're otherized. And I've seen people who, you know, at times they appear to look white and they'll check that box because it benefits them. Or at times they're like, oh, well, let me check the POC box because it benefits me there. And that type of fluidity, I mean, I'm not going to take anybody's privilege away from them, I suppose, but (laughs) I had some issues with that as, you know, as a person of color, as someone always marked other and not even allowed to be a part of that conversation. Mm -hmm. Like... (laughs) That one, yes. (laughs) yes um so okay I want to get I feel like we talked a lot about like colorism in general um I want to get back to sex for a little bit Mm -hmm. and the babies (laughs) the whole conversation around how colorism impacts our romantic relationships our partner choices uh can you talk a bit about that (laughs) a little bit (laughs) (laughs) where do I begin (laughs) I will say this this is the this is the part of the conversation most people want to talk about because I can tell I can sit up here and tell you oh dark-skinned people make less money dark-skinned people spend more well are arrested at higher rates and have larger prison sentences and employers are more likely to hire a light-skinned person even though they have less education and less job experience I can say all that But that's abstract, you know, that's kind of like intellectual, like, oh, okay, that's interesting data. 
But when it comes to our romantic, sexual partner, one-on-one interpersonal choices, that's like visceral, right? Like that's immediate. That's like in the present. Like that's under my skin. Like that's in my blood. You know what I mean? That makes my blood boil or like my toes tingle, whatever. You, we feel that, right? It's not just some abstract intellectual concept. And so this, the conversation about how colorism impacts those intimate partnerships is one of the most um, fraught, one of the most fraught manifestations of colorism. And so we can start at the very basic one, the most obvious one, the beauty standards. And because we currently live in a society where the standard of beauty has been set to European, has been set to Maria Sharapova or Ariane Grande, or I don't know a lot of celebrity names, so forgive me. I don't know. Um, Then people are conditioned, people are conditioned to also find that beautiful, right? And that conditioning is intentional. That conditioning happens in every um, facet of life, commercials, TV, textbooks, products, you know, bottle, water bottles, like clothing design, like what crayons, school supplies, like every single facet of our culture is not, is not untouched by the conditioning that white is more beautiful or that white features are more beautiful. Um, Because people talk about, well, it's just a preference. I just woke up liking white girls. (laughs) I just woke up liking light skin with green eyes. Um, and maybe it might feel that way to you, but the, the power structure knows good and well that you were conditioned to yeah. prefer those things. And you can look at the patterns, right? I always tell people if it's just a random preference, it would be more random. It would be more random. You wouldn't have this like stronghold of people preferring light-skinned um, children, wanting light-skinned children and wanting light-skinned men. Well, well there's the gender difference because now dark-skinned men go back and forth between being fetishized versus lighter-skinned men. But for women in particular and femmes and people who identify as women, it's always the same, right? We don't vacillate about preferences when it comes to uh, women there in terms of people saying lighter-skinned or white-skinned women, women with straight hair and smaller features are more attractive. And so I think we have to be honest about how conditioned we are as a society about so many things, right? Mm-hmm. Body type, um, body size, um, ability, right? And with the, so, okay. The other thing though, is that your partner is also social status. And I was actually writing about this recently. So people choose, especially committed partners, and for people who are interested in the institution of marriage, that is especially about social status and economic mobility. Like for real, for real. Yes. It's so many layers. Jump in whenever you want to, because I'm (laughs) like- Let the church say amen. I'm so with everything. And- talking about the the social status of it um i've seen this in a, in a multitude of places and ways where people it's like white is purity and the closer i can get to that the better my life is going to be so i'm sitting here thinking about like the american eugenics movement and they have the whole context of are you fit to marry and that being based on european standards so mm-hmm. everything that you're talking about opens up for me like oh well how many 
how many people of European descent are getting married and procreating and creating that nuclear family model that everyone like theoretically is supposed to be striving for and how many people are being left out of that conversation and is that an upward mobility conversation to be a part of like how many people of color are actually getting married there are staggering rates of of african american women professionals who are you know consistently single and there's nothing wrong with being single but like why are we not looking at the standards as a way to relate to that because there is something there's something in there and it's deep and I love that you say it's deep because like <laughs> there's just so many layers to it there's so many layers it's many layers and the layers are each deep in and of themselves <laughs> you yeah. know and that there's the the difference between like dark-skinned women and dark-skinned men is that in a patriarchal society, men don't have to be considered conventionally attractive to the degree that a woman does, right? In a patriarchal society, men can lean on, well, I'm educated and make a lot of money, so I'll take good care of your daughter. Or I'm educated and make a lot of money, so I'll provide stable income and uh, I can pay for the, the mortgage, right? So I might not have the conventionally attractive male body, which we know is the six pack. I don't know, actually, whatever people are saying is a conventionally attractive male body. Um, but yeah, so there is, because of the sexism and patriarchy and misogyny, there is that double standard. So even darker skinned men, um, still because of their male privilege have access to um, not only partnerships, but because they also have access to more employment opportunities and income. Like they're not as limited as dark skinned women have been, especially historically, right? We see like the threads starting to be pulled like ever so slightly, you know? But yeah, that the historical legacy because people also have to realize that wealth is generational. Yes. Right, status and class is generational. So all those privileges that your family was able to accrue 30 years ago or five generations ago, right? You're still benefiting from that. Or the opposite, if your family was at the, you know, marginalized, oppressed, wasn't able to access that, you're still dealing with the fact that your great-great-grandparent was an uneducated, illiterate sharecropper, right? For me, it was my grandparents who were illiterate, uneducated, seasonal sharecroppers, right? My yeah. grandmother was a domestic worker. My grandfather worked on the railroad when it wasn't sharecropping season. And so people in that, when we talk about privilege, people say, well, I worked for everything I got. Right. I'm not saying you didn't work hard. I'm not saying everything was easy to you, but you started at a different place. You, yeah. you didn't start in the same place that I started, right? And so that's what we have to consider. Absolutely, absolutely. And you know what you're saying, like, these things were not that long ago. Like you just pointed out, that's only three generations. Mm -hmm. And I'm what they would call a first generation college student. Most of my peers, my particularly non-POC peers don't get what that means and how critical that is for what's being created in my life. Yep. There's also the aspect that like in communities of color and particularly darker skin communities, there has been systematic breakdown of the economic structures that have been built. And <laughs> racism, colorism, we could call it a number of things. Like it's, it's been present in not, in, uh, in disenfranchising communities mm -hmm. based on skin tone. Um, oh. 
Now, in terms of the marriage rates, because we hear the statistic that Black women are less likely to get married statistically, but actually it's dark-skinned Black women who are less likely to get married. If you disaggregate between dark-skinned Black women, medium-toned Black women, and light-skinned Black women, who, that in, which includes biracial or mixed-race Black women, um, lighter-skinned Black women are just as likely to be married as white women. The statistic was like 55% for light-skinned Black women. For medium brown Black women, it was about 35%. And for dark-skinned Black women, it was about 22% or 23%. So less than half as likely, right? And so again, like we can't say it's a race problem. A lot of times we accuse racism of things that are really the fault of colorism. Yeah. Oof. Yes. Um, this is great. And um, and we're already talking about gender bias. So this is something, you know, like because we're talking about relationships, this also feeds into procreation. And like you talked about like yep. reaching generationally your children to strive for something better. Um, growing up, I remember having this thought uh, like that it was not okay for girls to be dark skinned. And I know this was some internalized conversation that I picked up from many years of hearing other people talk about stuff, but I have I had these two cousins and one was a boy, he was lighter skinned, one was a girl, she was darker skinned. And I remember thinking they came out backwards. Mm, that's real. That's really how, how society is structured. Yeah. There's, I'm thinking about this book that I would recommend for you and any of your um, communities called Mythologizing the Black Women, the Black Woman. And it's a, it was based on some like a, one person's research. It was one research study where she um, surveyed white men about their dating patterns with black women. Like, so white men who had been in intimate relationships with black women. And she talks through all these myths, all of these narratives that these white men were bringing into these relationships. Some of them were, you know, like long-term serious committed relationships. Others were like just everything to like a one night stand, right? Like casual sex. And so like these various white men were even talking about the different shades of black women, right? And like, well, if I am gonna seriously consider a black woman, she'll have to be very light-skinned or, am I frozen? Oh, you're back. I, like I might be frozen. You're back now. <laughs> oh. I'll wait to hear from you. Okay. I hope I'm not frozen. No, I can hear you, but you can't hear me. Okay. Are we back? Am I back? Yes. <laughs> Sorry. I don't know. It just like, I was, and I was like really like getting into a point and then I noticed that you weren't moving on my screen, which usually means that I'm frozen or that my internet is tweaking out. 
Um, what was the last thing you heard me say? Um, oh, we were talking about happening uh, white men dating uh, black women and preferring light-skinned women. Come on. And I don't know if it's my side or your side. Oh. Okay, since we are still streaming, I'm gonna keep chatting. Can you, can you hear me? Yes. I can hear you. Okay. <laughs> Technical difficulties. <laughs> yes. Okay. So um, really, really slowly. <laughs> so that my internet get mad at me. <laughs> No, I hope we're um, just going to keep the fingers crossed that we're smooth for the rest of this because um, it might be my side. I don't know. But you were sharing about uh, white men who only date light skinned women. Oh, yes. So I was in, saying. Yes. Yeah. In the book, uh, Mythologizing the Black Woman, the white men were talking about how if they were going to seriously consider dating a black woman, they would choose a lighter skinned black woman who looked had you know fair skin whose hair texture was a little straighter but then they also talked about how dark-skinned women were more likely to be relegated to the realm of fetish and fantasy right and seen as well i will if i want to be sexually adventurous then i'm gonna you know let me try a dark-skinned woman right and so it becomes this dehumanizing approach to having sex with black women is like well it's safe to try out all of my, you know, fantasies that I would not try with my partner, like my official partner. And so like relegating darker skinned black women to the realm of the, the taboo, the taboo sexual fantasies, right? Or um, just sort of like a curiosity and or like an oddity even, you know? And so when we think about those narratives, the, one of the last chapters in the book talked about how white men felt okay perpetuating those narratives. And this is, might be painful for some people to hear because even black men agree with them, right? So black men have also bought into, right? The mainstream narrative that darker skinned women, like, yeah, we'll have sex with you in secret. We'll have like secret affairs with you. We'll have lots of fun with you, but we're not gonna bring you home to meet our mom. We're not gonna take you out in public, right? We're not gonna ha have you on our arm. Um, and I know this is like very heteronormative, but the stereotypes and the standards and the expectations were created in a heteronormative context, right? And so that's, I'm, I'm using that as a frame of reference because even in same-sex relationships or queer relationships, the, there's still colorism, right? And even though, even though it's not a heteronormative relationship, the stereotypes about beauty and what we expect from people are based in those norm, norms, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I love that you bring in the fact that this is not just a heteronormative conversation, 
but also that this happens inside of LGBTQIA plus relationships. And what that is, um, I'm not gonna say what it is, I'm not gonna speak to it as an authority, but what I have read and seen is that the darker skinned you are, the more masculine mm -hmm. you're expected to be. And it's an expectation. So it's like to defeminize and dehumanize and, um, and to put in that position of being male, being expected to be more masculine. Um, mm -hmm. You also pointed out the conversation around exoticizing and like that whole, that whole aspect of people, people being over-sexualized, especially black people. And the fact that we haven't owned our bodies for a number of centuries, all the way to the point now where we're being exoticized and fetishized and still not allowing to be had our own sexual autonomy and exploration and discovery. And as I get into this conversation around health and sex, so many people don't know that. Like free love, everything is great, it's a revolution. And I'm like, for whom? <laughs> Cause we got a lot of other places to start. <laughs> yes, 100%. And I think there's also um, darker skinned people being hypersexualized, not just in terms of, uh, so if you look at the pseudoscience of the day and, and all the pseudoscience that was used to justify things like slavery, um, there were, there was, when I say pseudoscience, I mean fake science, right? There were purported science, the science of the day said that dark-skinned people were more animalistic, right? There was the belief that we were closer to apes than to humans. And so our sexuality was viewed as being like animalistic sex, right? We black dark-skinned people weren't making love. We were just right. in heat, supposedly, right? We were just procreating the way animals do, like other animals, right? Lower animals with lower intelligence. And so the, again, when we think about committed partnerships of various types where it's about love, it's about respect for your, your personality and like acknowledging your humanity, people have not been able to, are not been conditioned to imagine dark-skinned people in that way. Yeah, that is, that is so very real and so very powerful. Um, is there anything else that you want to speak to in this conversation around sexuality, colorism, like anything that we haven't hit on yet? Um, I think there's, I, I kind of want to go the route of the, like actually looking at, when we talk about colorism, it's a bodily experience. It's an embodied experience in a way that race may not be, right? Because you can experience racial discrimination without anyone ever seeing you, right? So if I send in a job application and I have to mark my race, or if I do a test or a college application, people might not know what I look like, but they say, oh, you marked the African-American box or you marked you know, the Asian-American box. And so you can still experience racism without anyone ever seeing you. But colorism is so much about what we see. It's so much about the physical body and how we move through the world. And I think that is a really important lens to think about, you know, sensuality even. And I'm kind of thinking about it in terms of that, like, so sexuality, but also sensuality. So even if you're not with another partner, like how, what is it like to live in your body? What is it like to feel and experience touch of various types, all the various forms of touch and the experience of, 
things brushing up against your skin? What is that experience like when you are putting lotion on your body, when you are washing yourself and, and grooming yourself in various ways and the, the pleasure of your body? And I think colorism and that anti-Blackness and that anti-Indigenous um, sentiment really separates us from our bodies, really you know, alienates us from the joy and beauty and pleasure of being in our physical bodies yes. and loving them. I love that. I love that. I mean, I'm thinking about somatic healing. And Come things. on. <laughs> it's going to um, work. It's going to work. It's going to work. It's going to work. Um, can you hear me? Okay. Um, all right, so I'm just, yeah. So to, you know, fill the space while we work out the technical issues, um, healing is so critically important is what I'm getting from this conversation and to be able to love the body and love the self and love the space that is being created um, on an everyday basis. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good it's all good um what I what I was getting from your share though is like actually loving the self through all of these spaces and and you know like being in your body and being embodied I think about when I'm putting on lotion or oil and you know when we're talking about like people who are doing it with the skin bleaching creams and like the amount of shame that's going into that touch on the body versus loving the body and mm -hmm. being like, okay, this is nourishing my skin and this is nourishing my soul. I think about the same thing when, um, you know, I think about the term like ashy, you know, mm -hmm. and how like that's such a negative thing and it has to be fixed. And so like, if you're putting on lotion to not be ashy versus like loving yourself and like massaging your muscles and just being with your own intimate touch and being, and being allowed to be intimately touched by others, that animalistic sexuality conversation, it robs so much from the beauty and the experience of sensuality and making love. Mm -hmm. So that is so critical. And thank you for that. Um, can you talk to us about your healing work and the, uh, the items that you offer for people who are in this conversation? Yeah, so I offer opportunities for support in your healing journey, no matter what your race or ethnicity or color is. There is a type of healing for all of us, no matter what our experiences have been. Um, so I do collective workshops, speaking, training, professional developments at universities and um, companies and organizations. And I also offer one-on-one -on -one coaching that is open, again, open to anyone. And this year I also started group coaching specifically for dark-skinned women. So all of that can be found on colorismhealing.com. You can also follow me on Instagram at colorismhealing. I will talk about these offerings and services from time to time there as well. Yes, yes. Um, and I'm sure people can catch your talks and everything else that you have out there. Um, I just wanna say thank you for being on the show and for bringing this conversation. It's so yummy and exactly what we need right now. It's an mm -hmm. honor to have you on. It was great. Thank you. Yes. Mm -hmm.
Yes. All right. So thank you everyone for joining us today. This is the ITCAST Real Talk on Sex. This is our community outreach podcast that aims to increase diversity in conversations on health and sexuality. Through this work, we're creating a world where all people feel loved, honored, and respected. Visit us on Patreon, support the ITCAST, learn more about our work at nikasharels.com, N-I-K-A-C-H-E-R-R-E-L-L-E-S.com. And please subscribe to our YouTube channel and share this work with your community. Um, tune in, check in with us next week and share the love. Thank you everyone. We'll see you here.